You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Happy Palm Sunday. Again, it's good to be with you to not only begin this very important day, but really to kick off the most important week in the Christian year. Uh, Today marks the beginning of the most sacred week in our liturgical calendar, if you want to call it that, one that has often been referred to as Holy Week. Some of you may be thinking, who cares about religious calendars and why should any of this matter to me? And there are a couple of reasons, I think, why celebrating Palm Sunday and why doing what we're doing this morning matters. Uh, for one, it matters to the New Testament writers. It's, it's prioritized in the Gospels. When you consider the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them give an account of the life and the ministry of Jesus, some of which are unique to each book. Some of them include details that none of the other books include. And then some of them uh, are details that all four of them include. But when you look at the scope of all four Gospels, you figure out pretty quickly that the last week of Jesus' life uh, in the earthly ministry uh, was really important. A large portion of each of these gospels focuses in on this final week. For example, uh, John's gospel is 21 chapters in total. Uh, John 1 through 11 focuses on the beginning phases of Jesus' ministry when he calls the, the first disciples to himself. Uh, up to chapter 11, That is in Bethany, the city of Bethany. We'll talk about that here in a little while. And then you get to chapter 12 is the triumphal entry. And from 12 to 21 focuses solely on this final week of the Lord's earthly ministry. Roughly 50% of John's gospel focuses on Holy Week. Uh, The gospel of Mark, accordingly, also focuses roughly 50% of its time onto the last week of Jesus' life. Matthew and Luke both uh, include a lot more parables of Jesus. So right now we're in Luke, we're studying through a, a large section of parables. And even considering the amount of parables that are included in those gospels, 30% of those gospels focus on this final week. And so one of the reasons I think it's important for Christians to prioritize Holy Week is it seems like the New Testament authors, particularly the New Testament gospel authors, wanted us to focus on it. They, it mattered to them. It mattered a great deal to them. But not only that, it's not only prioritizing the gospels, it prepares us for Easter. I think so often in our modern context, all of the focus goes into this one day, this one moment, Easter, which certainly is the most important day, and there's no doubt about that. We'll make no apologies for that. But what, ha- what ends up happening is we end up losing sight of everything leading up to that day. And, and if you're anything like me, and you, and you have a busy schedule, and, and you have all these different responsibilities and different things that you're doing, you kind of feel like you go through life quickly with all these different points on your calendar that you got to hit, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's Sunday, it's Easter, and you have put almost no attention spiritually into preparing your heart for just the, the, the weight of that day, the gravity of that day. And, and, and so one of my hopes for Palm Sunday this morning is that much in the same way 
I believe the Advent series that we did, beginning in the first part of, of December, really prepared us for the Christmas season. My hope is that Palm Sunday will really prepare you for Good Friday night and Easter Sunday morning. By the, by the time we, we get to next weekend, you'll have been thinking about all the confrontations and the betrayals and the heartaches and everything that leads up to ultimately resurrection. Now, if you are unfamiliar with Holy Week, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to go through this really quickly. I just want to give you a snapshot of the week so that you can, again, begin to put the pieces together in your mind as you go through this week. So it begins on today, Palm Sunday, marked by Jesus' so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem. There's a celebration. There's this great confrontation that takes place in the temple. We're going to talk about both of those this morning. Uh, that then moves into what we would call Holy Monday, uh, which is a really happy-sounding day uh, considering what happens on that day. Jesus curses the fig tree. If you remember, it's a really sad story. Uh, he's just like, boop, and it dies. It shrivels up and dies, uh, and he makes it into a parable. Uh, Holy Tuesday, he travels into back up to the Mount of Olives and it's there that he's confronted by the religious leaders of his day and he has actually some of the most piercing words that he speaks to the Pharisees in that confrontation and it is that confrontation ultimately that pushes them over the edge. They begin to plot his death. It, it becomes an imminent plan. That moves into Holy Wednesday, you might have guessed. Uh, nothing much recorded on Wednesday in the life of Jesus. Given the extent of travel coming to Jerusalem and the exertion of clearing the temple and then confronting the religious uh, leaders, uh, they likely rested on Wednesday in anticipation for Passover that was coming the next day. Sometimes we refer to Holy Wednesday as, this sounds way cooler, Spy Wednesday. You like that? Anyone want to take a guess on why it's Spy Wednesday? It's because Judas, the spy, goes and um, begins to make his deal with the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> and then that takes us to Maundy Thursday. What does that mean? Why do we call it Maundy Thursday? <clears throat> it comes from the Latin mandatum, which means commandment. It was on Thursday during the Passover where, incidentally, Jesus also institutes the Lord's Supper that he says in John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment, there it is, I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you say really offensive things on social media. That's what he says. I'm just kidding, that's not what he says. If you have love for one another, that is the new commandment. <clears throat> Before the Passover meal is finished, the text tells us that Judas leaves early to find the Sanhedrin and let them know where Jesus is so that they may go to arrest him. Jesus finishes his meal with his disciples and then takes his disciples into Gethsemane, the garden where he prays and his lousy disciples fall asleep during that prayer gathering, just a real show of support. And then uh, that takes us to Good Friday, the early morning of Good Friday, which is an ironic name for it when there is seemingly nothing good about this day. Uh, early Friday morning, Jesus is arrested. Matthew chapter 27 tells us that early that morning, uh, right after the arrest of Jesus, Judas had already hung himself because of the deep sense of guilt he felt for betraying the Lord. This day is full of accusations. It's full of physical beatings and humiliating actions culminating in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus next to two criminals. Black Saturday follows, a quiet and somber day, a hopeless day. The disciples 
uh, are probably left speechless. They have no idea what to make of any of this. Their Lord, the one they believed was the Messiah, is in the grave. This is also, incidentally, the Sabbath for the Jews, which is, uh, fun fact, where Black Sabbath, the name, comes from. Uh, anyone know that? that? That's a good one. Yeah, absolutely. And then that leads us to Easter Sunday. And you're mostly, I think, well aware of what happens on Easter Sunday. If you're not, then come next week and find out. And it's going to be pretty amazing. But all of these things happen in the course of a week. I mean, a lot takes place over the course of a week, right? Confrontation, rebuke, betrayal, guilt, suffering, death. But all of it begins with this celebration, this glorious celebration as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And so it begs the question, what went wrong? What, I mean, obviously this is a part of God's sovereign plan. We believe that, right? At, at, at the specific time when the timing was right, God sent forth his son to die on the cross. We know that. So this was a part of God's plan. It didn't take God by surprise. But from a human perspective, how did things so dramatically change in five days? What went wrong? How did people go from elation and celebration to yelling, crucify, crucify, cru-? where, did, where did things go wrong? I've titled the message this morning, where, or where Things Usually Go Wrong, because what I want to do is I want to look at the way Jesus interacts with his people in this chapter and identify where things take a turn, because it's my belief that the same interactions that Jesus has with the people of God on Palm Sunday are more or less the same kinds of interactions that he has with us today. And the way that we respond to him, the way that we respond to these interactions is pivotal for determining our future either with or without him. And so the first thing that you're going to notice this morning, if you have your Bibles open, Matthew chapter 21 is where we're going to be, you'll notice that he reconciles long-awaited expectations. He reconciles long-awaited expectations. Let's read the first three verses of Matthew chapter 21. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now one of the things that you'll notice when you read the Gospels, and by the way, right now our life Bible studies are in a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel according to Luke. If you're in there, you know you've been in it for the last, it seems like, 30 years. It's been, I think, uh, a little over a year since we started. We have jumped ahead this morning uh, in our Bible studies. We were supposed to be in, in session 57. We're in session 70 because they are studying the triumphal entry as well. I thought it would be a fun thing to look at Luke's account. We're going to be looking at mostly Matthew and John's account. But one of the things that you'll notice from the very beginning of the Gospels, all four of them, is that from the moment Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he is slowly working himself towards Jerusalem. That is the end goal. That is the final destination that Jesus has in mind because he knows what awaits him there. This is a part of God's divine sovereign plan. And so throughout the Gospels, if you were to take a map, and look at where Jesus begins and where he ends up, you see a very clear path to Jerusalem in all four accounts. So one of the reasons why Palm Sunday 
is such a big deal is it marks the day when Jesus finally arrives at his ultimate destination on, in his earthly ministry at least, into Jerusalem. Now at this point in the story, in verses one through three, he's on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He travels through a place called Bethphage, which is a small town outside of Jerusalem, onto the Mount of Olives, which is a mountain connected to the outskirts of Jerusalem. And we actually have a picture to show you of the Mount of Olives. It has a trail that goes all the way down the Mount of Olives and into the city of Jerusalem. And you can actually see this mount and this trail from the city. So one of the things that's interesting about Jerusalem in the ancient Near East, we're Texans, most of us, uh, either by birth or by choice, right? Um, We have a very skewed understanding of geography, A, because we're Americans, we don't really study it, uh, but B, because something that is not very far away for us is like an eternity away for most of the rest of the world. So I remember one time we took a trip to Galveston, to actually Kima, which is right outside of Galveston, great little spot by the way, and uh, we had some friends with us that were from Germany, and we got in the car, we began driving, and like 20 minutes into the the trip, one of the Germans goes, uh, so how long is this car ride? And we said about about five hours, and they both started laughing, and they were like, are you kidding me? And we were like, no, it's like five hours away, it's not that bad at all. And they were like, five hours would get us through six different countries. In Germany. Like five hours is an unheard of amount of time to be in a car for someone not from Texas, right? I was like, you can drive 12 hours and not even leave Texas. Texas is massive. The ancient Near East is even smaller. All of these places that you hear about, these different cities, villages, mountains, all this stuff, you can basically stand in Jerusalem and see it all. It's a very small area. And so you can see the Mount of Olives from the the city. So Jesus stops, he's on the trail, he stops, and he sends two disciples ahead of him on what feels like honestly a shady back alley drug deal only with donkeys, right? (laughs) He's like, hey guys, you go on ahead. I'm gonna wait here. Uh, You're gonna find a donkey and a colt. They're gonna probably be, be tied up. Don't worry about that, just untie them. You know, if anyone asks, the Lord needs them, is all you gotta say. It's just strange, it's a strange request. But something is happening here very important. There's something is is answering a long-awaited expectation in the actions of Jesus. Look at verses four and five. Matthew tells us that this took place, this strange donkey deal, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Matthew tells us that Jesus made this request in order to fulfill prophecy to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Now what's interesting about this is that John tells us in his account, the disciples had no idea what was going on here. They had not connected the dots yet. John 12, 16, it says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, this is after resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. I just can't imagine how many of those conversations must have taken place by the disciples, by the way. Like standing around like, man, wasn't that weird when he sent us for those donkeys? Like how did he even know they were gonna be there? You know, and then they're like, oh. (laughs) Zechariah nine. Right, so they're just following orders at this point. It seems random, but he's fulfilling prophecy. And, and that prophecy does come from Zechariah 9, verse 9. In Zechariah, one of the so-called minor prophets, God speaks through Zechariah to his people 
about a day coming in the future when the Messiah will come, the anointed one, and he is going to establish salvation for all of the nations. So understand that at the time, the Jewish people believed that salvation was only for Israel. They were God's chosen people. They were the ones who possessed the covenants and the statutes. They were, had the temple. They had all of this stuff. But God reminds them through Zechariah, no, 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 no. It's not just for Israel. There's coming a day when I'm going to bring salvation to the nations. And that salvation is going to happen through this long-awaited arrival of the Messiah. This is a massive thing that they had hoped for for centuries They had longed for God to send them a redeemer. They had longed for their Messiah, for for God's promises to finally come into fulfillment that he had made so many years ago. And so Jesus' arrival on Palm Sunday signifies this shift. God is here. The Messiah is here. He's come. All these long-awaited expectations are finally being met. So Palm Sunday, in many ways, is a reminder to us that Jesus meets these deep expectations that all of us have, that there is something more out there, that there's something more that people from every nation possess. We all have this longing, this long-awaited desire for something more. And Palm Sunday is the shift, the reminder that yes, there is something. He reconciles that within us. He, He reconciles this deep longing for something greater that we're all inwardly aware of, even though you may not be willing to admit it, you know, if you're willing to be honest, there's something beyond yourself, something that makes sense of all of this. And Palm Sunday says, it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer to that long-awaited expectation, that deep sense of desire and longing for something more. He fulfills that, he reconciles that in all of us. The great C.S. Lewis once wrote in his probably lesser-known work, The Abolition of Man, he talks about this very strange concept. He calls it the Tao. If you've never read this, it's, a, it's an interesting book. It's a philosophical powerhouse of a book. But he refers to this, this very strange thing called the Tao. And, and basically what he, he's getting at is that when you survey the world and you survey the history of the world and you look at every major religion, every major philosophical endeavor from any part of the world during any time in human history, all of them are in pursuit of something greater. All of them recognize that there must be something good that exists outside of themselves that is worthy of pursuit. It seems to be, in other words, a condition of humanity to know that there is something more than what meets the eye. And Jesus entering into Jerusalem that day on a donkey reveals that he is that good and beautiful thing, that long-awaited hope for God's people that answers all of those questions, that, that checks all of those marks, that, that, that really gets to the core in, in a way that nothing else, no one else can. Some of you need to hear this this morning. You have this like deep longing in your soul to be known and to be loved and to be protected and you're searching for it. You're desperate to find it. You've looked in all different kinds of places, drugs, alcohol, relationships, uh, work, authority, power, whatever it is. You're you're longing for that feeling of it all makes sense, it all comes together, and you need to know that you find that in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He meets, he reconciles these long-awaited expectations. But not only that, he redeems lifelong brokenness as well. Look at verses 6 through 11. It says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. 
They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the ground. Now, because of where they are geographically, I joked about it earlier being Florida, not Florida. Uh, it is in, obviously, Jerusalem. We know that these are palm branches. These would have been native to that area surrounding, hence the name Palm Sunday. Uh, verse 9, it says, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So there's a lot to unpack here. Let's just work through it. The disciples go, they get the donkey and the colt, they untie them and bring them back to the Lord. And it says that when they return to Jesus, they take their cloaks off and they put them over the animals. And Jesus gets up and begins to ride down this trail on the Mount of Olives on the donkey and the colt. And you'll notice that apart from the disciples in this passage, there are two other distinct groups of people. There's the crowds that are with Jesus on the mountain as he's coming down. But then there's a separate group of people inside the city in Jerusalem. And these are different sets of people. These are different crowds. The first crowd that was with him on the mountain followed Jesus from a city called Bethany, which is where he was right before Bethphage. So again, you look at a map, Bethany uh, is going to lead you into Bethphage and then to the Mount of Olives and then into Jerusalem. Now, if you remember in John's gospel, the final miracle that Jesus performs before he goes into Jerusalem, it happens right before this in John chapter 11. Matthew doesn't record it. In fact, none of the other gospels record it, but John does. It's a major focus of John's gospel because John is trying to show us that Jesus is God incarnate, that he can do things that only God can do. And, and his final kind of bookmark for uh, what Jesus is capable, uh, capable of comes in John 11. If, if you remember, John uh, records that Jesus is good friends with, he's very close with, a family, two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he receives message that Lazarus has fallen ill, and rather than being a good uh, you know, happy, kind of the Jesus that we like to imagine he is, gets up and goes immediately to rescue his friend. He's like, no, I'm going to wait a few days so he dies. Very strange. He waits, he goes to the city, they, they, they move the, the stone out of the way from the tomb, he cries out, he weeps actually, he cries out to God in a very public prayer and he raises Lazarus from the dead. It's a monumental moment in Jesus' ministry. And it is met with extraordinarily mixed reviews. It makes the religious people of that time very jealous. They begin to think, this is not good. He can raise people from the dead. What is going to happen now? Everyone is going to follow him, and they're going to stop paying attention to us. And they're not exactly wrong, because that is what some people do. They're blown away by the fact that Jesus has just done this. Lazarus was dead for a good solid few days. It says he stunk. Like he smelled like death because he, he was dead. So Jesus brings him back to life. And they immediately, because they're so enamored with this, this miracle worker, they begin to follow Jesus. Those are the crowds that are with him on the Mount of Olives. They followed him from Bethany through Bethphage and now onto the Mount of Olives. So get this, the disciples take their cloaks off. They put them on the donkey and the colt. Jesus gets up on the animals and begins riding. And the crowds begin to take their cloaks off. And they begin to line the path down the Mount of Olives leading into the city with their cloaks along with palm branches that they have cut down in celebration 
of this coming king. We know that by what they say. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We sang that this morning. But what does that mean? Again, uh, this is a quote of the Old Testament, this time from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a very descriptive messianic psalm. It's a festive psalm. It's very celebratory. In fact, history tells us that it would have been recited at almost every major Jewish festival. And it describes Jesus in a lot of ways throughout it, not just, not just in the passage that it quotes here, which is 25 and 26, but Even before that, there are several verses that are tied to Jesus as the Messiah. For example, Psalm 118, verse 20. It says, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. The idea of a gate here uh, is specifically in Hebrew, the gate that opens to the city. The gate that opens to the city. So bear in mind, Jesus is about to enter the gates of Jerusalem. Beyond that, Jesus is the gate to the Father, He says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you move on, Psalm 118, verse 22, it says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is actually going to quote this verse just a few verses later in Matthew 21, verses 42 through 44. And then we get to Psalm 118, 25, and 26. And it reads from the Old Testament, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This this term in Hebrew, save us, it literally means save us now. There's a sense of desperation in it. And the Hebrew here, the construction of this phrase would have been pronounced Hosanna. So when you get to the New Testament and you find Hosanna, it's just a transliteration of the Hebrew. Save us. That's what they're saying as Jesus is coming into the city. Save us, O Lord. Save us, King, Son of David. Save us. You see, Jesus came to do a lot of things in his earthly ministry. But the chief reason he came was to save to bring salvation. And this has been true from the very beginning of his life uh, on earth. Obviously, he's eternal, right? But his earthly life, his incarnation. What does the angel say to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21? He's talking about Mary. And he says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus says in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. John in 1 John 4.14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus came to save, and he's the only one who can. He's the only one capable of of bringing salvation. Acts chapter four, verse 12 says, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is our savior. He comes to bring lifelong brokenness to an end by bringing redemption to his people. You know, one of the, one of the reasons I love City on a Hill so much is the honest commitment to grace that we have here. And I'm not, just, I'm not just up here like, you know, I was a uh, member and a beneficiary of City on a Hill long before I was a pastor. So I, I'm not just saying that because I'm the pastor here. I became the pastor here because I believed that in part. I want to be here. I want to invest here because this church is, is so unique. The honest commitment to grace is one of the things that I love most. I love it because when you're truly committed to grace, hear this, it frees you to be radically honest about how broken you truly are. 
I believe at the end of the day that people simply want to be known, truly known, fully loved, and totally accepted. That, that's really, I think, like a core need in every human being. And that presents a major problem, doesn't it? Because it's hard to feel truly known and fully loved when you become in tune with how unlovable and unacceptable you really are, when you're just honest about it. So here's what happens, is you begin to go through life hiding these little parts of your life from other people because you're afraid that if you show them, you'll be rejected. So you keep parts of your lives, your thoughts, your past, sometimes your present, hidden from people around you. And it seems like self-protection. It seems like the right call because you don't want to let people too close because then they might hurt you. But it's actually one of the most devastating things that you can do. Because here's what happens, no matter how close you think you are to other people in your relationships, you know you're not fully exposed. And if you're not fully exposed because you've hidden parts away, you're not fully known either. And then you begin to wonder, as great as these relationships are, as close as these people are to me, what if they did know all of me? Would they still be here? Would they still love me? Would they still accept me? Or would they leave me? And so you're hung out in this like really kind of weird space of not really ever being confident in any relationship that you exist in because none of your relationships are as deep as you hope that they feel like they might be. But listen to me, as unlovable and as unacceptable as you believe you might be, the Bible says we all are. We're all unlovable and unacceptable. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And yet, it is in that moment of unlovableness, of unacceptableness, that Jesus is the one that we cry out, Hosanna, save us, O Lord. And he fully loves in spite of all the things that you've ever done. And when you realize that, it frees you to be known truly by other people because you realize even if they reject me, Jesus loves me. And the hope is is that if they've also experienced that same kind of radical freedom, They're going to love you because they realize how unlovable they are. Listen to me. You can be fully known here. You're not going to freak us out or scare. I guarantee you you're not going to say something we've never heard before. And you're like, well, you don't know me. Yeah, bro, you don't know me either. (laughs) You're not going to shock us. You can be fully known here. You can bear all of the bad parts of yourself. You're not going to be run off. We believe that Jesus not only answers our deepest hopes, these long-awaited expectations that we have, but he also redeems our deepest sin by wiping us clean, by washing us with his blood. But listen to me, you've got to be honest about it. James said one time, and I'll never forget it because it's the truest thing in the world, that, that you will never have to hide in this church. And actually, the most unsafe place you can put yourself in this church is a hidden place because you'll get found out real quick. It's true, because if you, if you struggle with some sin pattern in your life, pornography, drugs, alcohol, whatever, there's about 10 other people in this church who one time struggled as well and have surrendered that, and they know all the lies, and they know all the bull crap, and they can see through it. And they're going to be like, hmm, I know that, seen that before, lived that one, bought the t-shirt. You got to be known here. 
Honesty is what sets you free. You have to be willing to do that, to confess and to repent because here's where things usually go wrong. That brings us back to the theme of the message this morning. It doesn't work well when you attempt to hide it. When you attempt to act as if you have it all together because when you do that, it produces this deep sense of self-righteousness within you and that leads us to the third point. Jesus not only reconciles our long-awaited expectations, he redeems our lifelong brokenness, but third, he rejects our self-righteous arrogance. Look at verses 12 through 13. It says, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. Now this is the last thing you expect the Messiah to do. You expect him to come into the temple to make a sacrifice, to stand up before the people of God, to give a riveting speech that's going to rouse the people into political revolution and overtake Rome and take back Jerusalem and the the war is going to begin and freedom is here. You don't expect him to come in and begin flipping tables and chairs over. Now again, we have a picture of the temple here. You'll notice that on the outskirts, this large section, basically all that flat space there, You'll come in through the little bridge over there and then into that flat space. That's called the Court of the Gentiles. This is a common area where you would find very typically booths set up where people would sell animals for sacrifice, pigeons for sacrifice. So Leviticus chapter 5 verse 7 gives this allowance. It says, if anyone cannot afford a lamb, which would have been the thing prescribed to sacrifice, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear. I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. Two turtle doves or two pigeons one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So this passage makes it lawful to sacrifice pigeons in the place of a lamb. Now bear in mind, this is right before Passover. Passover is gonna take place in a few days. So there were a lot of traveling Jews that had come in from various parts of the world to observe the Passover in Jerusalem who didn't have access to their livestock. And so they would have had to go and purchase pigeons in place of the lamb if they didn't have money to buy a lamb for this momentous sacrificial occasion. So the court of Gentiles likely had many tables during this time set up to sell pigeons. So the question is, why is Jesus so angry? Well, first, Leviticus 5.7 makes it lawful to substitute pigeons in the place of lambs. It does not make it lawful to sell pigeons in the temple. That's not, that doesn't say that in here. But secondly, They had way overpriced the pigeons to gouge people in order to make a profit off of temple worship. They had monetized temple sacrifice. So Jesus rebukes them. He begins flipping over tables, and then he quotes Jeremiah 7, 11. And there's a lot of context here in Jeremiah that you need to know about. In Jeremiah 7, let me set the stage, and maybe this whole scene with Jesus will make a little bit more sense. In Jeremiah 7, God comes to Jeremiah and tells him, Go into the temple and rebuke the religious leaders there. What does it sound like Jesus is doing? Who is he patterning himself after here? Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there his word and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. There's gate imagery again, by the way. And then you get to verses 11, or 8 through 11. 
It says, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? And then he gets to verse 11. And he says, has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And Jeremiah then finishes this temple sermon by telling the people of God, God is going to cut you off and no longer hear your prayers when you pray them because you continue to harden your hearts instead of listening to what he has to say. That's the context of Jeremiah 7. So when Jesus storms into the temple gates and he begins rebuking the religious leaders of his day and quoting Jeremiah 7, the context was not lost on them. It was really clear what he was doing from the get-go. This is an act of judgment against the self-righteous, judgmental, prideful, arrogant spirit that permeated through the people of Israel. And this confrontation would lead some to repentance, but it would mostly lead to not even five days later them beating, spitting upon, cursing, and ultimately nailing Jesus to a cross to watch him suffer and die. This is where things usually go wrong. We love the Jesus that meets the deep longings for something greater, the C.S. Lewis abolition of man Jesus. No problems with that one. We love the Jesus who offers forgiveness and grace for sin, the one that welcomes us with open arms regardless of who we are or what we've done. But what about the Jesus who flips over your self-righteousness or your greed? What about the Jesus who demands repentance of you? What about the Jesus who says, unless you repent, you're going to die in your sins and end up in hell forever? What are you going to do with that Jesus? Will you bow before him? Will you confess your sin before him? Will you accept that you don't get to decide what is right and what is wrong, but that you actually have to be conformed to his word and not the other way around? Or will you harden your heart and argue your point and debate those who correct you and attempt to justify yourself? Will you celebrate his arrival like the broken? Or will you yell crucify like the religious? This is where things usually go wrong. We celebrate today that Jesus is king, but what will you be saying five days from now? The answer depends wholly on how willing you are to receive his correction when it comes. Happy Palm Sunday. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for setting the stage for us to see how this, this week is, um, is going to go. And, and what, a, what a great reminder of what the Lord came to do to, to fulfill all these Old Testament expectations and, and, and to be the Messiah that you sent, but to so strike against our own thoughts and opinions of, of what it should look like, of who you are like. You reveal who you are like. We don't get to decide that. It's up to us to either conform or reject. God, give us a heart to be conformed to these things. Give us a heart that is soft, that owns sin and confesses and repents, that marvels at who you are, that receives correction, that is humble and not prideful and arrogant. One that looks to see Jesus' second arrival as well. An arrival that will mean for Christians freedom 
and celebration and an arrival that will mean for the world tremendous, tremendous guilt. How we love you, how we thank you for sending your son to die on our behalf that we might stand before you fully forgiven, full of grace, worshiping you in truth and spirit. How we love you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Good Friday, 7 p.m., Easter Sunday, what times? That sounded a bit like a kindergarten class, but I'll take it. God bless you. We'll see you.